The Spin-Off Podcast Network. We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option. Why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your whānau or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where we're can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. On this episode of Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, we're talking about money, where our financial system came from, how it functions now, how we can expect it to function in the future, and maybe most importantly, how we can navigate it. I'm joined for this kōrero in the studio by Dr Pushpa Wood and via Christchurch, Kendall Flutie. Tēnā kōrua. Tēnā kōrua. Dr Wood is the Director of Massey University's Financial Education and Research Centre and was, in 2017, appointed as an Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Financial Literacy and Interfaith Relations. Kendall is the Co-Founder and CEO of online financial education platform Banker and was, in 2019, named Young New Zealander of the Year for her own efforts to improve financial literacy in Aurangatahi. Rangatahi. Thank you both for joining us. So Pushpa, You've been working in financial education and financial literacy for quite some time now. So can you give us an overview of how the whole thing works? <laughs> when we talk about the financial system, what are we actually talking about? When it comes to financial education or literacy, you can make it as simple as you like, or you can complicate it as much as you like. Um, I have very, very simple way of describing uh, financial literacy. Now, in New Zealand, or actually worldwide, money has come through, you know, few, shall we say, not, not decades, but centuries of changes. So money is in its bare minimum form is kind of a either chunk of metal in terms of coins or it is a bundle of paper in terms of notes. It becomes money only when it actually takes the function of exchange, when it takes that social function of exchange between two people, between two communities, between two nations, then it becomes money. Now, money over the, especially in last 50 years, has become more and more complicated. The products and services that are being introduced are beyond people's um, comprehension sometimes. And the more complicated it becomes, the more mystical form it takes. And therefore, it becomes difficult for people in a day-to-day life to actually understand the full function of money. In New Zealand, we started out with financial education, then we moved to financial literacy, then we moved to financial capability. Now we're moving between financial well-being and financial resilience. So COVID has brought in the new term of financial resilience more at the forefront than it has ever been. But the bottom line is if you take away all of 
these terms. The bottom line is, do you understand the function of money in your life? Do you manage the money to best possible way that suits your circumstances? And can you plan for your future so therefore you have a kind of secured future. Nobody can have a 100% predicted future, but at least you have made provision for emergencies. So in other words, money becomes part and parcel of your planning process. So it sounds quite accessible when you talk about it like that. But Kendall, (laughs) what do you see in terms of people and especially rangatahi being able to understand financial systems? Is it accessible? Yeah, I mean, the financial system, if we're thinking about it as broadly as possible within Aotearoa, is quite complicated and can seem quite ethereal. To push this point, I think the way we engage and rangatahi in particular engage with the financial system is through money, through currency, whether that's, you know, via an app on their phone or whether it is actually in coins and notes. But there's definitely a lot more behind the scenes, behind the green curtain. And when you pull that back, you start looking at things like the Reserve Bank. What does that do? How does that impact my life? Or other lenders in the financial system, insurers. There's a whole lot going on. There's our capital markets, which is another complicated word, which really just means shares and debt and stuff like that. So I think there's a a lot packed in at the top that we don't necessarily appreciate and understand how that impacts us, which actually makes it really difficult when we're wanting to take our own financial life by the reins and create that financial wellness and well-being and financial resilience that Pushbill was talking about. So financial literacy is actually understanding all of those terms that you just referred yeah. to, isn't it, Pushpa? Yeah. Financial literacy is, to me, is a set of skills, skills and knowledge that you actually acquire. Then when you start to apply those skills and that knowledge into your day-to-day life, especially in your financial world, then it falls into the category of capability, right? And financial well-being is the outcome of capability, So if you are a capable person, I mean, there is no 100% guarantee, but you are more likely to move towards the state of financial well-being. And to me, financial well-being is that you can meet your day-to-day needs and you can plan for your future and feel slightly secure towards your future. Our biggest challenge, especially with Rangatahi, is my observation has been for the last 20 plus years, is the money is becoming invisible. And so therefore, the relationship between money and the individual that existed in my generation no longer exists. If you actually go to a six-year-old child, you will be surprised how few in a classroom would know beyond $20 note what it looks like. They would not have even seen the $50 or $100 note because it's just... The physical version. The physical version is Mm. not there. When I ask six-year-olds, where does the money come from? Oh, mommy gets it from the machine. So that relationship that was there is no longer there. And therefore, the function of money has also changed. And as Kendall said, it's complicated behind the scenes. It sounds simple when you go to a bank and you present your card, you take money out. You don't realize the half a dozen different functions that are going on before that money actually comes to you. And that's been a fairly short period of time where things have changed and people don't see physical money anymore. Like when we used to put 
put 20 mm. cents on top of the mm. milk bottle. You know, those yeah. kind of experiences aren't happening anymore. So how do you see that as impacting rangatahi, Kendall? What are their perceptions around money that are sometimes a bit of a barrier in participating well in a financial system? I think pushbas hit the nail on the head in terms of the main barrier that's presented itself over the last 15 years as we've digitised our whole financial system and that tangibility of money is a real loss and I actually do encourage a lot of parents to try and introduce some of that back, especially before five years old. Even it shows it really increases financial literacy and understanding. Some of the other barriers, I think, are more societal as well. We think about the consumption pressures facing rangatahi at the moment, and that interacts with um, the likes of social media and generally consumerism at play. Um, Aside from that, I think we've got these pressures in our economy which actually push young New Zealanders somewhat towards apathy. I've been speaking to a lot of rangatahi recently who actually think it's easier just to disengage because they don't see some of the financial realities that perhaps their parents or their grandparents achieved as attainable to them, which is really unfortunate because I think the first way to play the game well is to understand the rules of the game. Um, So if our rangatahi feel like there's no chance of them winning the game, they're not even that bothered about playing the game or understanding the rules. So what sort of financial mindset does that create, Pushpa? It's quite interesting. I'll take you back to an interesting experience during um, lockdown last year. And a lot of young people, university age people, were looking for something to do at home. And we have a series of short courses. And one of those courses is understanding you and your financial world. And it was interesting, there was about five young people actually enrolled in that course. And one of the process of the end of the course, we asked them, how did you find? So they reflect on their own learning. And it was really interesting that all four of them said they did not realize the role different parts of financial system actually plays in their lives. They may not be aware of it, but they now understand the role and how they can contribute to the economy and how they can feel part of the economy. And I think that's what we need to bring back where we start to somehow engage our young people, our rangatahi, to actually see that they have a full stake in the economy of this nation. And they are just as much a contributing factor as the next door neighbor. So if they start to feel part and parcel of it, and I usually say to parents, if you don't teach them anything at all. Please just teach them one thing when they're young, and that is the concept of delayed gratification. If you can teach your five-year-old that concept of delayed gratification, teaching them about money, for people like me, people like Kendall will be a piece of cake. And to bring together a couple of things you've mentioned, what's hard about that is if they can say, OK, you've got an online option to buy lunch today, and that would be easier than spending the time to make it. So understanding those costs and returns and also the value of money, even though you can't see it physically disappearing. But then I wonder sometimes about New Zealanders who aren't in a state of good financial well-being and feeling like this kind of education is never targeted towards them or opportunity. When we talk about shares or wealth growth or anything like that, I think that a lot of New Zealanders who aren't wealthy feel like it doesn't apply to them. Do we speak to all parts of society well about finance, do you think? I think we're improving. I certainly think, let's rewind the clock even 
you know, a decade, these sorts of channels into our financial system, like investing in the stock market, weren't accessible to the majority. And I think that's what really excites me about the innovative financial technology we're seeing coming onto the scene through Shearsies, Hatch, Stake. There's a bunch of different platforms that allow people the opportunity to invest and to grow their money at the same pace that, you know, previously the, the 1% were only able to attain. I think the flip side of that coin is that it becomes very accessible and easy. And if you don't necessarily have the education and the capability that Pushpa was referring to, there is the potential you can still get into a lot of trouble. So I think with these new technologies as they're emerging, sure that increases access and equity opportunities, but we do need to ensure that they have an education-first approach because without the rails in place, we potentially can see some people running away with the opportunity and actually not heading towards financial well-being at all and heading in the other direction because they're beyond where their capabilities currently lie. See, what happens is a new technology serves very well to a particular sector of the society. It does not serve the society as a whole well in my opinion. And therefore, we need to be consistently looking at and continually inquiring into what works best for which particular sections of our society. In New Zealand, and and maybe because I am from Asia, I'm biased, but in New Zealand, what I've found is we don't tend to look outside the European example. So our examples come from America, from UK, from Canada. I mean, Grameen Bank was a classic example that Asia gave to the world. Microfinance is a classic example that Asia gave to the world. The microfinance, which Asia knows, or what I know, is very different to how we use microfinance here. And I keep continually challenging is what we are doing here is not microfinance. You are actually giving loan to people to pay off their debts. Whereas to me, microfinance means creating income generation opportunities through community finance. We are getting there. We do have some really good innovative interventions coming through. But I think what we need to be looking at, equipping communities rather than individuals. Yes, individuals will be equipped if you equip the communities. That's my way of of thinking, is because Maori community, Asian communities, Pacific communities, we don't think individually. We think collectively, especially when it comes to money. We make collective decisions. We don't make individual decisions. So even if we make individual decisions, they are still informed by collective thinking. So we need to develop programs. We need to develop products. We need to develop education programs that actually nurture that collective thinking and that also then extend that collective thinking. Tikatai, because even the concept of ownership is quite different in a Māori context. And when we talk about multiple owners of Māori land, then you're in a completely different financial system, aren't you? But you're navigating a different court and all of those challenges that come with it. But what are the opportunities that come with it, Kendall? Do you think if we start to look at different models of financial system that can operate within the 
the generalised system that we have in Aotearoa? That's an intriguing question. I think if I was really going to push the boat out, I would say we could shake up the whole economic system. And I don't know how viable that is in even my lifetime, but capitalism is certainly creaking its bones. We've followed this model for a long time, but we're seeing the pointy end of that in vast inequality and wealth distribution. Such a small percent possess so much of our wealth and I don't think that feels like a very Kiwi way of existence. There's some cool concepts coming through in social capitalism as well which doesn't just consider financial capital, it considers human capital as well and environmental capital and that feels a bit more like like us from my perspective at least. But if we drill that down into more product-based innovation, I do really think if the regulation and rules can stay ahead of the technology, which is always a really challenging task in innovative environments, we could see increased access and we could look through that community lens and apply some really interesting use cases for Aotearoa, I think. Mm. There are a couple of interesting terms, and Kendall, you will be aware of it, there are a couple of really interesting, innovative thinking going on. One is economic justice. So we're moving even from financial capability and investment mentality. And the second term, which is also very dear to my heart, is restorative finance. So any financing that happens, it restores the community, it restores the environment, and it restores the social fragment of the society. And if it doesn't meet those criteria, then it doesn't really go ahead. Uh, I've just finished writing a paper on um, sustainable finance and corporate world. Can they live together? (laughs) And one of the challenges I said to them is that the corporate world need to stop thinking about and giving excuse of their stakeholders. Our stakeholders want this. That's what we're doing. Sorry, shareholders. And I'm saying, forget about talking about your shareholders. Start talking about stakeholders. And in that stakeholders include animate and inanimate stakeholders. They need to be part of it. And when you start thinking in those terms, then you will find your focus will need to shift gradually from shareholders. And the second challenge I wish it to them is if from tomorrow, every shareholder puts 20% of their profit back into the community, Mm, what will it look like? Because 20% less of their profit is not going to kill them, right? It's not going to make them bankrupt, but that 20% will put food on somebody's table and shelter on somebody's head. Yeah. So that's also looking at defining what a stakeholder really is and that we're all stakeholders. We are. In Aotearoa. Kendall, happy heo I can see on the tip of your tongue you're ready to add to that as well. I think that's really interesting, especially when you think about rangatahi and from my perspective, the way they see the world as well increasingly. And I think it's broader than just profit-seeking. I think they do value the things you've just touched on, Pushpa. They value a broader definition of success and wealth, probably true to the roots of the word, not just focusing on money. So I think when we see that generation coming through and having a louder voice at the economic table, it's going to be a really interesting convergence and one I'm excited about. But I do think we've got to balance this tension between technology pushing us forward at all costs and 
you know, other things shaking up our financial system, open banking's potentially going to be in the landscape in a couple of years. What does that mean? Yeah, so open banking speaks to our financial data that's currently just held by our banks, that being able to be pushed out and shared with everyone, with our permission, of course. But increased data flow, you know, in the wrong hands, we've seen with some of the technology giants, isn't necessarily a good thing for us as individuals. Managing those tensions, it's going to be a really interesting next decade in Aotearoa. And we've had this huge impact of COVID and people will refer to it through all of our lifetimes. What sort of stresses and responses have you seen? I think what COVID has done, two, three key things, and I'll reflect on New Zealand um, mainly. One thing is for us, it has actually shown us the digital divide that exists within our community, especially in country like New Zealand. Second thing is it has actually had positive impact and positive impact has been people have finally realized their own potential to control their destiny when it comes to money. Because when the external temptations were removed away from them, they managed to save money, right? The Commission for Financial Capability survey showed people reported having savings in because they weren't buying their lunches every day. They weren't having coffee every day. But third thing it has actually showed that the long-lost community-based, community-looking-after, community-feeling has actually resurfaced again and people have started to look after each other. And the last thing it has actually shown is people's, whether it is willingness, whether it is capability, whether it is willing lack of resources, whatever is the reason, that their lack of saving for emergencies when people after a week and a half, two weeks started to scream they don't have sufficient money to buy groceries, that's where I started to lose my sleep. Because that's when I started to ask, we've been at it for the last 15 years, what have we achieved? If our general population still is struggling to make ends meet, if there's reduced income or no income in two days. But it has also thrown up some new, and we did a small piece of work on changing faces of vulnerabilities. So we have new groups of vulnerable people who have appeared we never thought we would have or we had. And I guess they hadn't expected to be in that situation. Very much so. So it was just as much shock to their system as it was for us educators looking at it. And now how would you summarise our state of recovery or regeneration? I'm not too sure. It's really interesting for New Zealand because even with the GFC, we were largely insulated from it. So I think this will probably have some resounding effects that haven't quite figured themselves out yet that sort of would hark more back to the last financial crisis that we actually suffered. And that sort of created an entire generation of Kiwi who weren't as risk-seeking and they potentially didn't take the right amount of risk for them at the stages of their life. So I think I'm quite interested in that longer-term view for Rangatahi right now, whether they'll have that impact. Some research I saw recently showed that financial resilience was generally down across the board, which obviously isn't a great thing for our country or our economy when we think about 
individuals, but I also do think it presents us with an opportunity. We've got this unique time where we've all been through something together. We've had people with real financial hardship, especially the middle class of New Zealand who haven't experienced anything like this before. So it's quite a shock to them. So now we've got this opportunity where we can actually look at each other and say, what are we going to do to change this, to push this point? How are we going to make sure we do have those safety nets within ourselves, within whānau, within bigger communities? Because it's hard when you've relied on an income source that you can no longer rely on. So what is the opportunity there? I think an education team is a perfect teachable moment. (laughs) It's a harsh one. (laughs) It's a harsh one, but it's a perfect teachable moment. At least for people like Kendall and I, we don't have to do that preliminary promotion, Mm. thou shall save for your future, thou shall have some emergency fund, thou shall think about your retirement. At least that work has been done kindly by COVID. So we need to actually pick that up as an opportunity to say, now this unpredicted, unwanted, unplanned emergency hit us, and not only hit us, but hit the rest of the world, it has taught us few things. And what are we going to do about the lessons that we have learned at individual level, at whānau level, at community level? That's one opportunity. I think second thing is our young generation now has an opportunity to shape some of the economic initiatives that are coming through. They have the opportunity to start having the discussion to say what matters to them most and environment has been missing from economic conversation for a long, long time. It is now starting to surface. Economic justice is starting to surface. Environment is starting to surface. And I think if we start to look at things in that manner, in a holistic picture, then I think we can move forward and we can move forward positively. What New Zealand always will have to be careful about and conscious of the fact is we don't live in a bubble. Even though we can have everything perfectly planned, perfectly organized, and everybody's behaving 110% they're supposed to, (laughs) but one accident outside New Zealand can influence us. Our economy is never, ever going to be sheltered from outside shocks. So we need to be prepared for those external shocks and plan to best of our ability to minimize the impact. And there are a number of things we can do. And this is a great opportunity to bring some thinking behind it. Yes, academics do their thinkings and yes, economists do their thinking, but Rangatahi needs to be at the table. Women need to be at the table. All different age groups need to be at the table. Mm. And also that you don't have to have a lot of money to be able to talk about money. You need to talk about money and understand money and not withhold the knowledge that will help a lot of people. Access to digital options has, like you say, Kendall, impacted rangatahi. But how do we make sure we keep on top of the real knowledge of things like digital money and cryptocurrencies, which can just be buzz terms that we all know someone who's allegedly made a lot of money from But we actually have a whole new system we kind of have to understand. Those digital currencies, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, a really fascinating landscape at the moment. Even I struggle to stay on top of those emerging technologies and I feel like my fingers as much on the pulse as it can be. And it's 
sometimes a bit of a dangerous landscape because there's a lot of misinformation due to both the incentives of the market, but also there's a lot of smoke and mirrors around in terms of cryptocurrencies. But it is a market that is emerging and I'm not going to speculate on the credibility in its future. But what I can say is Rangatahi are really interested in it. I know more under 18s with cryptocurrency than I do my peers or older. So that's an interesting viewpoint. I think for us just wanting to stay across it is conversing, talking about it. Sometimes the reason we don't know much about money is because we're a bit embarrassed about how much we know about it and we're not wanting to admit that. So talking to one another about what we do know, asking for them to share their experience. And when I mean talking about money, I don't just mean people your age, your partner, your whanau. I mean, talk to rangatahi about cryptocurrency. They've taught me a, a ton about it and it's how I feel I stay connected, as well as doing a bit of research from credible sources. Any media that you consume is a great way to stay up to date with things. But I would be wary in believing that cryptocurrency is necessarily going to be the inevitable future because things just move so fast. There's value in our current monetary system, the fiat system, and I don't think we're going to be shifting overnight, but it's definitely worth keeping across those emerging technologies as they evolve. I'm just going to admit I don't know what the fiat system is. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's it's our monetary system. So notes and coins, that's essentially a name for our monetary system that we use. And there's also, I guess, the fact that all the money that's in Aotearoa isn't necessarily real as well because banks don't have to have all the money that they actually give out. So that's fractional reserve banking as well. So again, that sort of harks back to the start of our kōrero, which is there's these confusing words for actually what can be quite simple explanations behind them. So if people are listening, Pushpa, and they realise, hmm, there's some gaps in my knowledge and perhaps I need to upskill, what is the best way to do that? See, there are a number of opportunities around. There are number of resources around. The younger you are, the more lifespan is ahead of you and therefore you are in a best position to take certain risks because you can bounce back. There are online courses. Almost every bank has got some courses and apps. Then there's Commission for Financial Capability that has got sorted website. There's Banker. So each of these organizations have got the best possible advice I will give to any Anybody, regardless of what age they are, is don't ever hesitate to ask questions. I always love pretending. I've said, look, you know, I've got too many gray hair to know everything about it, guys. So come on, this is your opportunity to teach me. But the simple thing is, please make sure that you do your homework before you hand your money to anyone, whether it is an app or whether it is bank, whether it is anybody else. I'm a very conservative investor. I'm a fantastic saver. You can't beat me in saving. And the reason behind that is I didn't grow up in the money. I grew up in a very, very middle class society where three, four days before dad's pay was coming in, mum would have run out of money. So I have seen how money was treasured in my family and how it was actually used, spent, saved. So I usually say to people, if you are investing in a risky proposition, whether it's shares, whether it's bonds or whatever it is, just ask yourself question, can I afford to lose this money without having a heart attack? And if you can say 
yes to that, then take risk. But if that is the only money you have got to put food on the table tomorrow, then you need to actually think twice. But doing your homework, and at the moment, in nowadays, there is no excuse not to ask right questions. We could probably do a whole podcast on financial personalities, like you say, the saver, the spender, the investor. Mm-hmm. I have earned the name Captain Sensible from my husband. Uh, you know, <laughs> Fantastic. You and I are saying No, no, that's good. Um, and then, you know, how you work to balance and how you interact with people and I guess that's a really good way for us to wrap up Kendall for you to offer rangatahi and those of your generation maybe new parents what would you urge them to do at this point and what sort of kaupapa should they consider I think everyone's financial journey is different so one of the first things I say to people is if you're comparing yourself to others forget about it that's not going to be productive to you because the sense of financial well-being for everyone looks different. So for a young Fano, it may be aspiring to own a home or send their child to further education or whatever it may be. And for others, it's a mansion, you know, on a hill somewhere. And that's not my jam, but each to their own, right? So I think figuring out what financial well-being looks and feels like to you is a great starting point because then you have something to shoot towards your north star for everyone who's not pushed out there and saving isn't their number one skill it makes that delayed gratification not going out a little bit easier and it starts those behaviors snowballing and it becomes something that can eventually become kind of addictive and gamified like I know when I've got something I'm saving for that's really tangible and exciting to me get really into it. So I'd say figure out why you're doing it. Why are you going to sacrifice today? Why are you going to make the generational play that your parents have been able to put you in this position to go forth for your family for the future? And then I totally back up what Pushpa's saying. You're spot on, Pushpa. Get talking about money. I would love to see Aotearoa being a nation where we just go out and, and are not shy about sharing our financial reality, especially when it's tough, and share that knowledge with each other. Because I think collectively... The financial system works best when we're all winning. It actually doesn't work when only 1% of us are winning. So I'm hoping I can see that kind of shift for Rangatahi in the future. From my point of view, I'm saying take the taboo out of money. Take all of these fancy jargon words and terminologies away and just simple have money conversations at home. I heard very, very interesting um, example years and years ago. Somebody said, when we will make money conversations as a habit, same way as we have become so used to getting up in the morning, brushing our teeth without anybody reminding us, without anybody telling us, we just simply do it. Same way if we start to treat money as not something which is mysterious and only those who have it have a right to talk about it. That's where we will start to make some progress, where we start to see money as part and parcel of our day-to-day life. And the second thing is, Focus on your needs first before you focus on your want. So if you can actually in your head, and Rangatahi, having had one growing up in the house, are excellent. They are expert in translating their wants into needs (laughs) if you give them half the chance. So I sometimes run community workshops called How to Say No to Your Teenager Without Feeling Guilty. Wow. (laughs) 
But you're exactly right, and that's why this has been a kōrero, a conversation that counts. Te tahi kōrero whaitake nui ki takatoa. Nō reira e mihi ana kia kōrua tahi. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation that really counted. You've been listening to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off. Hosted by me, Stacey Morrison. Produced by Jane Yee and Matthew McCauley, with music by Grayson Gilmore. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.